Welcome to ESAM's Global Economy Podcast. My name is Frederick Eriksson, and today we're going to talk about U.S. trade policy. More specifically, what is U.S. trade policy today, and how does the Biden administration think about trade and America's role in the world economic order? In late April, Jake Sullivan, Biden's national security advisor, gave an important speech at the Brookings Institutions about renewing America's economic leadership and the key tenets of Biden administration's view on international economic policy. To explain its trade and industrial policy and how the U.S. is revaluing its support for international trade rules, Sullivan reached for the example of architectural avant-gardeism. He said, and now I quote, The way that we're going to build an international economic architecture is not going to be with Parthenon-style clear pillars as we did after the end of the Second World War, but something that feels a little bit more like Frank Gehry, end quote. Google Frank Gehry if you don't know who he is, and you will get a good image on what Sullivan has in mind for the international economic architecture. For those of you less interested in forms and architectural imagery, the key message from Jake Sullivan was that the administration uh, will continue to seek new ways to boost industry and that it's not going to lose any sleep over its dismissive attitude to trade rules and the absence of any substantial trade policy in America today. With me to discuss Sullivan's speech and help me to decipher US trade policy, I have two highly experienced experts, Keith Rockwell and Stuart Harbinson also published a blog on exactly this topic, and we'll put the link to that blog in the show notes. Keith was for many years the Director of the Information and External Relations Division at the World Trade Organization, and was its Chief Spokesperson. He's now with the Wilson Center and the Henry's Foundation. Stuart is a Senior Fellow at ESAP and was representing Hong Kong as Ambassador to the World Trade Organization for a long time, a position that also made him to lead several WTO bodies, including the General Counsel. He was later uh, the Chief of Staff to Dr. Superchai when he was the Director General of the WTO, and he was also a Senior Advisor to Pascal Ami when he took over from Superchai. So, gentlemen, welcome. Thank you very much, Frederick. So, let me basically start with uh, a question about what's going on here. So if we decipher Sullivan's speech and how it fits into the development of U.S. views on trade over the last year, Keith, so how would you say, how significant was Sullivan's speech and did it signal something new? Well, thank you very much, Frederick. Um, it was an extremely significant speech and it did signal something new, but something that's been, that's been building over time. If you take this together with a speech that was made a couple of weeks before by Janet Yellen, which was about China, you get a complete picture of where U.S. Uh, trade policy is headed. And the fact that Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, delivered this speech, he's not an economist, he's a, he's a very brilliant guy, but he's not an economist, and he sort of apologizes for that in the beginning of the speech. But the, the key here is that people are looking at the circumstances around trade as having national security implications. And what do I mean by that? The first thing is, is that as you know, undereducated, or should I say non-college degree, white working class people in the United States have been marginalized in society. And this has led them in large numbers to support Donald Trump. 
And Joe Biden believes that the re-election of Donald Trump would be a disaster for U.S. security, national security. And the second element of that is China's rise. The U.S. views this with some suspicion. I think in both in both cases, uh, what the Biden administration has concluded uh, is is prudent. I think that the the skill that the president has shown in moving massive pieces of legislation through Congress is quite extraordinary. Uh, but I think there are a couple of things here that are just off the mark. I think that the fact that people are linking trade to income inequality or uh, massive job loss is is really aiming at the wrong target. Because if you look, it's, it's technology that has driven most of the decline in, in real wages that has led to people leaving jobs. And this trend is going to continue and indeed accelerate. So if you look at that from a more a nuanced point of view, you'll see that that they're picking an easy target, but they're, it's the wrong target. And if you look at the fact that the with respect to income inequality, the real culprits here are our regressive tax system, which taxes the rich very lightly and puts a burden on the middle class. And with all the tariffs that are in place now, the people who pay those tariffs in the largest as, as a larger uh, chunk of their uh, overall income are people who are poor or working class. The income inequality thing just doesn't really make sense either because the United States, while it has a poor uh, Gini coefficient at the, at the wrong end of the spectrum among OECD countries, the United States is not a trade-dependent country. Only about 25% of GDP is linked to trade, and that's very small when you compare it to most of the countries of Europe and, and many in Asia. So they need to look at other things, which they, it's to give them credit, they are uh, rebuilding the infrastructure, focusing on the environment, uh, looking at uh, improving the competitiveness in technology. These are all good things. Uh, it's just a shame that somehow trade is, has been made a scapegoat for ills that are better solved with other policy tools. Is it right to say then, Keith, that perhaps if we compare the Biden administration's view now, or what Jake Sullivan outlined with um, past Democratic Party administrations in in recent history, or at least if we go back to sort of the Obama administration and to the Clinton administrations, that, I mean, these administrations tended to have a very progressive view on policy as well. They wanted to support social policies that helped to reduce inequalities and improve the capabilities of people to get a better education and to become more competitive in the labor market. They also had policies to, you know, improve infrastructure, improve technology policies, education, science policies, and to use the the, the, the state in order to help people to to become more competitive sort of in a, in, in, in a global economy. So that's, that may still be there, but the what the administration is doing right now is that they well, in the first place, they add a pretty substantial piece of industrial policy to what it's doing. And then it's perhaps the absence of any trade policy which signifies this administration. I mean, Obama and, and his administration, Clinton administrations, they, they, they did have ambitions on trade. They wanted to do things on trade. In particular, they wanted to export more to other countries. But I'm, I'm not seeing much of that type of rhetoric or that type of thinking with, with the Biden administration. Well, that's a very astute point, Frederick. It's true. 
there used to be a bipartisan consensus in favor of trade. There is at the left end of the Democratic Party, there is there has always been skepticism uh, towards trade, but generally center center oriented Democrats have favored trade. Clinton and Obama were key drivers on things like the World Trade Organization and the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was essentially negotiated by the Obama administration. And Biden, of course, was the vice president, and he supported this. Hillary Clinton, when she was, uh, when she was Secretary of State, called it the gold standard of, of trade agreements. It was later rejected by her, and now by Biden, and this is because of the Trump factor. Trump has just been aggressively anti-trade. He pulled the U.S. out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership within days of taking uh, presidency. And what you have now is a realization that there is a vacuum, that if you really want to have U.S. influence projected around the world, you need to have some kind of link that extends beyond military. And what they've done... <laughs> He's come up with the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which is an agreement with 13 other countries that has no real trade element to it at all. And you have something called the America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity, which is with a group of Caribbean and Latin American countries. Neither, neither Argentina nor Brazil is part of this, by the way, which tells you how extensive it really is. Um, and these agreements are Potemkin Village trade agreements, to be frank. They are not in any way something that people are embracing. Uh, the, the, there were, I think, 36 U.S. business groups came out uh, with a fairly alarming statement about the IPEF, and they said it's, it's taking the country in the wrong direction and may harm relations with these countries. Uh, certainly, the countries themselves are lukewarm towards the idea, and if you're trying to persuade people to take on board policy uh, reforms that you favor in the areas, for example, of labor or environment, if you're not offering anything in return, which they're not because there's no market access being promised in either of these uh, rather tepid agreements, then how do you expect these countries to sign up for something, which, by the way, they have resisted fervently in the WTO and elsewhere. The only way to get them to come along is to have some, offer some kind of uh, incentive. And they're and they're not doing this. And they've and the other thing, of course, is that they've almost entirely abandoned the leadership position at the WTO. So reform of that body is going to be very difficult because the U.S. is not pushing. So let, let's come back to the WTO issues in a while. First, if I turn to you, Stuart, is it not pretty significant that a speech like this, which is outlining a pretty substantial part of the administration's views on international economic policy, is made by the National Security Advisor. Um, as Keith uh, said previously, and as you also comment in the blog, I mean, you would expect a speech like this in the past to be perhaps the coming from sort of Janet Yellen, or at least someone with her standing and status in, in economic policies, perhaps from not from a, the equivalent of a finance minister, so for a, a commerce minister, or perhaps indeed even from, from the... U.S. trade representative, but now we hear it from the National Security Advisor. Do you think is that a, a signal that, in terms sort of international economic policy, is now broadly a subcategory to security policy and perhaps even to China policy? Thanks, Frederick, and uh, and and great question. 
I think that's absolutely true. It, it's very noticeable that trade policy is just becoming a, a tool for use in, in, in other fields and very little value is placed on economic efficiency and growth through trade, which we, we mentioned in the article, uh, you know, trade is often scapegoated as, as responsible for a multitude of ills, which actually are the result of, of domestic policy. This is not only in the US, but in many other countries as well. But Jake Sullivan did in his speech and in the conversation that he had afterwards, he did talk to a certain extent about recreating a new international economic architecture. And uh, whilst doing that, he gave the impression that he didn't have a blueprint, a master plan, but that he saw evolving over a period of time a mixture of, of structures, as he called them, and substances. And he mentioned a number of elements in this new international economic architecture, such as, obviously, the WTO to start with, which he said the U.S., is not walking away from, but which he felt needs reform, which will take time. Uh, and as, as Keith said just a moment ago, the U.S. is not really leading that conversation, although it is involved in it in various uh, parts of the discussions, but it's not really in a position of leadership. Jake Sullivan also mentioned this global arrangement for steel and aluminium, which is uh, touted as a green initiative, but the subscript is clearly to contain China. The Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which Keith has also just mentioned, which seems to lack a certain amount of substance in terms of the trade side of things, and which, as Keith also mentioned, has been criticized widely by business groups in the U.S., and also by some of the other participants in the in the framework. Sullivan also went on to talk about unspecified measures that he said that the U.S. would have to take by itself, which seemed to indicate that autonomous or unilateral measures were still very much on the cards, and uh, particularly in return in response to uh, non-market policies. And he also mentioned unspecified plurilateral approaches. So the question that is in my mind is, you know, to what extent can this kind of um, intentionally messy approach to borrow from Frank Gehry uh, can be negotiated with other countries? And, and this is unclear to me. And while not underrating U.S. powers of persuasion, I've got to say I'm a little bit skeptical on, on that count. The European Union, of course, is speaks with many voices as ever, uh, but I don't think it fundamentally shares the U.S. view of China. India continues to plow its own farrow. Brazil doesn't want to take sides. And in Asia, I think, uh, particularly uh, Southeast Asia, countries are uncomfortable at having to or being forced to be put into a position of having to choose 
between the US and China. And also that part of the world re remains inconveniently from a US point of view attached to international trade. Uh, so that is a difference there. Uh, China itself, I think, would have to draw the conclusion from this speech that the direction of US policy is still uh, towards constraining China and tying it down and preventing uh, its rise, which it regards as inevitable. And uh, coming back to your original point, of course, economic efficiency does not appear to to feature in the list of elements that might form part of Jake Sullivan's new international economic architecture. And then finally, a question that occurs to me is that this is a very long-term sort of project. And the question, obviously, is will this administration have the time to finish the job? Oh, indeed. That's that's a very good question. It's um, We're not far away from, from the next election, and if if we're unlucky, we may have a different administration coming then, which, well, perhaps on some points are going to share this orientation, but but probably will be far less constructive than than the Biden administration is. So, but but on that point, if I turn to you, Keith, I mean, one thing I struggle to find a good answer to is is um, so this new orientation we see from America is there? You think an intentional idea here to try to build something new internationally in terms of changing the current structure of rules and institutions that exist? Or is it more correct to say that, which of course Stuart also alluded to, which is that, well, there may not be sort of an not even an idea or a concept here. It, it's just that they are playing for time. They're trying to, as you said also, Keith, trying to avoid that they're going to have a international economic policy which is going to be helpful to uh, the case that Trump wants to make and sort of in their hearts of hearts what Biden, Jake Sullivan, Janet Yellen and others would like to do and perhaps will do if they win the next election is to come up with a much more constructive idea which is going to build on what we have rather than trying to flesh out something new and which is going to be much more constructive in seeking partnership with other parts of the world in order to generate more market access and, and in that sense also become more helpful to American firms that want to engage more with foreign markets. Well, I, I think the answer to this question is, is that when it comes to policy right now, domestic issues are the priority. And in a way, international economic cooperation is kind of an afterthought. Those, those two agreements that I just spoke to, these two frameworks, are an indication of this. The fact that this is well into the third, the third year of the presidency, uh, it took that long for the administration to say something. And if you look at the major pieces of legislation, whether it's the Infrastructure Act or the Inflation Reduction Act or the Chips and Science Act, the, the key features here are all domestically oriented. They're about jobs for working class people, in, and many of these jobs will come in states that traditionally have voted Republican, which is an interesting approach and, and quite a clever one. If you look at the Chips and Science Act, it's replete with all kinds of social elements to it. If you want to receive these subsidies, you have to pay a fair wage, you have to be supportive of family-oriented uh, childcare, etc. 
and all of these things are are fine. Whether you when you have hundreds of of objectives sprinkled across these massive pieces of legislation, achieving all of them is going to be something of a challenge. And in a way, by pushing these things through with very narrow margins, I mean, it was a really skillful piece of legislative maneuvering. They, they really didn't think much about the consequences of these for on, 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 on other countries and their trading partners. I mean, the fact that Sullivan says right up front, and I'm quoting him here, the, new, the idea that a new Washington consensus, as some people have referred to it, is somehow America alone or America and the West to the exclusion of others is just flat wrong. I'm not sure that's the case. I mean, when President Macron went to Washington and he had all the, the trappings of a, of a high-level state event, he did not pull his punches. He came right out and said the Inflation Reduction Act, which says that electric cars, for example, must be produced in the U.S. if they're to benefit from the tax or, or, or subsidy provisions, that the domestic content threshold is enormous. And this goes for things like the electric batteries as well. Uh, he said, what you're doing is going to be cutting Europe not only out, but encouraging European companies to transfer their production to the United States. Now, there's a small problem with all of this. And he sort of says, you can see there's a bit of defensiveness here. They're sort of saying, well, we're not going to uh, do, um, autarky here. We're just trying to manage things better. If you look at the, the minerals that are required to make these electric batteries, they're not produced in the United States. And so this dawned on them, and they've come up with this kind of convoluted uh, rationale for what is a friend. They talk about resilient supply chains. What does that mean? Well, it means sourcing from friendly countries. Well, what is a friendly country? Indonesia is the biggest uh, producer of nickel globally. Are they a friend? Well, they should be. But there's no trade agreement with them. So what they've done, the, uh, the Biden administration has come up with this uh, new kind of trade agreement, which is cooperation for obtaining essential minerals and elements needed for uh, the production of electric batteries and, and automobiles. And the, a deal has been signed with Japan. Uh, there's one in the works with the EU. I don't know where we are on that as yet. Nothing has emerged. It's been in uh, consultations and negotiations for a while now. So this is a kind of oh, you know, we should have thought of this beforehand, but we have to put this America first thing here. Otherwise, it's not going to make it through Congress. And now they see that it's not going to work. So they're trying to sort of do a patch-up job after the fact. And it looks a little awkward, not least because under the WTO rules, to be a, a recognized trade agreement, you have to be covering essentially all trade, which is not a defined term, but certainly a very narrowly constructed agreement like those with the uh, Japanese and, and with the Europeans about essential minerals to enable them to benefit from these provisions. That I don't think would, would cut the ice at all. So it's, it's, a, it's a kind of late in the day recognition that these programs are going to impact close trading partners and friends, and that some form of accommodation needs to be um, needs to be put in place, but they're scrambling to try and figure out what that is.
And and on that point, Keith, if I can follow up, because one thing which I'm struggling a bit to understand is the overall sentiment and soul behind or this soul in this policy. Because I mean, sometimes I hear a view coming from from America, and also sometimes rep, sort of from people that work in the administration, which is that they feel that sort of the past decades of international openness hasn't worked well for America. I mean, they don't need to get to the sort of Trump end point or use that type of language that other countries have taken advantage of America, but at least they are not as confident about America's ability to make its own way in, in the world anymore if we keep a system which is based on rules along the along the sort of kind of architecture that we, we built um, over the decades and decades that followed the Second World War. So we have that sentiment on the one hand, which is that they're not as confident about themselves anymore. On the other hand, I sometimes also hear sort of from also administration folks and from others that are close to the political groups in America that they are, they feel themselves to be superior, that America leads on technology. It's um, far ahead of, of Europe and, and, and China in most sort of modern software, communication, computer software type of technologies. I mean, if we go into artificial intelligence, they can they can sort of brag quite a lot about that. And almost as if they, you know, to paraphrase a bit here, but have a view of the world where, well, Europe is like a museum and Japan is a retirement home and China is becoming more like this sort of open air prison that people have talked about the country as being. So I'm, I'm struggling sort of to get sort of a deeper understanding of how America views the world. I mean, is it is it is it a, an America who is not confident about itself, or is it an America which is overconfident about itself and think that, well, we can go ahead and do whatever we want. Other countries just have to follow because we are so big and so good. I think it's both. And and I think I think China well look, no one could have predicted in two thousand and one when China joined the WTO what China would become. No one could have seen that they would emerge so quickly as the biggest trader in the world and the second biggest economy. And the speed with which China has developed really caught everyone on the back foot. And there, there was certainly in the United States and elsewhere jobs displaced by a surge of imports from China. This, this happened. And I, there are a lot of very important questions as to whether the international trading system overseen by the WTO, whether multilateral rules really do cover a country like China. Because China is a very uh, special place. It's huge. It's, it operates in a way that is really unlike any other country. And do the rules cover the way in which China conducts business? And there are a lot of very important questions on this front. The, the alternative, though, of simply saying, let's engage in a commercial war with China, and you'll note that Biden has not removed any of the tariffs that Trump has put in place, because politically speaking, to do that would be very damaging for him. There is a bipartisan consensus that somehow China is a threat to the United States, and that has shaken confidence. On the technology side, and, and you're seeing this with this Chips and Science Act, this is an, an attempt by the administration to buttress this extremely important uh, element of the economy to ensure that, A, the where the country has a 
technology lead, that lead is maintained. And where it's lagging behind, specifically on the production of high-end semiconductors, that it jumps back into the race. There's a lot of worry about 90% of the high-end chips in the world being produced in Taiwan right now. Uh, when, when you talk about resilient supply chains, that's one of the, the crucial components of that discussion. And you'll see that under this particular series of policy measures, you're seeing a lot of chip makers shifting production to the United States, not only from Taiwan, but also from, but also from um, uh, uh, Korea. And people are starting to say, we need to pull up our socks and get, our, get ourselves back into the game here. So it's a combination. They do have all of these powerhouse technological companies who, by the way, in many parts of the Biden administration are not viewed in a positive light. And there are those who say they have too strong of a position in the marketplace and that federal antitrust uh, laws, uh, that data privacy laws, data protection like the GDPR they have in, in the EU, those sorts of things need to be put in place to try and rein in big tech. So it's a complex uh, series of, of um, things that are underway right now. And I, I think just try and, and sum it up in a, in, a, uh, in a phrase or two is very difficult. But it's in kind of an inferiority-superiority complex, which, which is difficult for trading partners uh, to decipher and to cope with, particularly when they see the direction that Biden is going in many ways is a direction that they applaud, particularly with respect to the environment. And even if the uh, result is that their producers are disadvantaged, they think that this is um, it's it's a much better approach than that taken by Trump, who basically ignored climate change. Yeah, indeed. And if I turn to you, Stuart, I mean, you were uh, saying previously that, you know, even if Sullivan, he doesn't have a master plan for what new type of international economic architecture that architecture that is going to emerge. But he sort of identifies a couple of concepts. He looks at different type of processes and different issues that will require different responses. Do you think there is something in that approach which can sort of dock with an overall WTO rules-based approach to how to deal with different things? And that can be national security issues as well as environmental climate change type of issues or do you think that america has already sort of gone so far that they have just invited other countries too much to respond perhaps sometimes even retaliate and to basically build their own policy along the same lines which makes it very difficult to find any type of connection point between what different countries are doing well i think that's a that's a, a crucial issue and i think with we're, we're on the cusp there now. We're, we're somewhere near the, the, the cliff edge as to whether the system is, is going to get out of control or not. We're fortunate in the sense that uh, the US and, and the Biden administration retains some respect, I think, for the WTO, or at least sees the WTO as useful uh, as a forum to tackle global issues, perhaps climate change, perhaps protection of, of labor rights and things like that. But at least there is something there which I think was lacking under the, um, under the Trump administration. 
But at the same time, I think the, the Biden administration seems to have a slightly partial or inaccurate view about about the history of of international trade. I mean, Jake Sullivan spent quite a lot of time in his speech deriding uh, the value of what he called traditional trade deals, which he seemed to equate simply with tariff liberalization, which is you know simply not true because uh, we've had. The WTO created in the 1990s, rules extended into all sorts of areas like services, like trips, agriculture and textiles for the first time. So, so it's, it, the WTO has been mainly a, a, a rulemaking organization. And if you talk about tariff liberalization, perhaps the country that has liberalized most over the last 25 years would be China uh, as a result of pressure during the accession negotiations and a sort of false narrative in my view is being created that that china's joining the wto is waved through by a lot of gullible uh, negotiators uh, which is which is quite wrong this was a 15 year negotiation with several major crises which uh, i witnessed as an observer myself and it was a very very tough tough negotiation and there are some commentators around. I think Professor Henry Gale, for example, has re recently written a book on this, saying that, in fact, the U.S. and others have not fully explored the avenues in the WTO to address uh, non-market uh, economy practices. So uh, there's, there's quite a lot there. Um, but one is left with the impression when Jake Sullivan talks about this new international economic architecture based on the what he calls the new Washington consensus that really respect for multilateral rules is not is not a major factor for him uh, and for the US right now interesting what Stuart just said um, because you may recall and and what Henry's book explains I think quite well and Henry is in a very good position to to look at this there was a case, you may remember this, that China brought against the U.S. and the EU that was at its heart about whether China is a non-market economy. They claimed that they would, after 15 years, 10 years, would become or be recognized in the WTO as a market economy. And, with, and this is particularly important when, you do, when it comes to assessing dumping margins. Uh, do you use a a proxy country at, for assessing costs because China's system is skewed in one way or another. And the Chinese objected to this, and they brought a case against both the EU and the U.S. And if you'll remember, that case just sort of disappeared. And the, the inside story to that is that they lost the case. And when they found out, when they got the, uh, the interim report that said they'd lost, they dropped the whole thing. So that's an example of where the WTO actually wasn't given a lot of ink because it was quickly buried. Uh, the Chinese were not happy with the outcome. Uh, but that's a case where, under the system, there was an avenue that could offer a, a solution to what is really a vexing and unprecedented situation with respect to China. Indeed. And, I mean, if I, if I ask sort of both of you, and perhaps going to Stuart first. So, I mean, you mentioned, Stuart, these false narratives. 
And I think it's fair to say that sort of these false narratives are beginning to pop up in different parts of the world right now. I mean, they, I think they are stronger in America than they are elsewhere. And America seems to be both sort of on the left and the right of the political spectrum that they engaged in sort of a highly ridiculed image of what the World Trade Organization is and what type of policies that you actually negotiate about there. It's this notion that the only thing the WTO has done is to basically uh, reduce tariffs or trying only to open up markets and there is no safeguards, there is no cautions, you uh, you can't go ahead and, and pursue a national security policy, you can't go ahead and pursue a good environmental or climate change policy because trade rules are going to stand in the way for these type of ambitions, which of course we know it's 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 flatly untrue. Um, but they are popping up a bit elsewhere too. Um, we see in, in China there is sort of a new type of narratives that are coming as well about international economic rules being unfair and being largely generated by Western economies in, in an attempt to uh, change China and to reduce the, uh, the political uh, structure of, of China. In Europe too, there is growing skepticism about the World Trade Organization. And even if we have, at least so far, we have mostly politicians who want to protect the, the rules that exist in the World Trade Organization. They, I mean, they accept that there may need to be some reforms, but they want to keep the system with high integrity and with strong relevance. But some there's sort of sort of leaking uh, in in different parts in Europe as well, um, and they of course are going ahead with a couple of policies as well that may not be obviously compatible with with these rules. So looking at American policy from sort of the angle of China or Europe or other sort of key partners in in the WTO system, where where do you think they are coming from, and and how do you think they weigh up? America's new type of approach to these issues. Do they think this is uh, it's now becoming so messy? So it's it's we should just sort of back away from it. There is no point trying to engage America in a conversation about what should happen uh, with these rules and with these systems, and perhaps start to pursue our own policies even more when when that goes against the rules that we have in the past. So how do you think they are looking at America? Well, I think um, probably the the overwhelming majority of um, countries uh, and economies which are members of the WTO strongly support the system still, because what is the alternative for if you're a, a medium-sized or a small-sized economy? It's the law of the jungle if there's no WTO. So I think you'll find that there's still a very strong constituency in favor of, of having a viable WTO. There are obviously great concerns about um, whether the US is is prepared to be part of that uh, on an ongoing basis, but no one can ignore the US. So uh, I think countries are very open to engaging with the US on a whole range of issues regarding the international trade system. I'm sure China is, but obviously there have been practical difficulties in terms of getting a dialogue going there. However, we hear that um, Anthony Blinken might be going to Beijing soon. So maybe that will be the start of something a little bit more constructive. But I, I think on the WTO, and you, you've mentioned quite rightly, Frederick, that there are trends around the world 
which might be seen to be um, undermining the WTO. But I think, you know, for example, the appellate body of the WTO, which is not operating right now, have no doubt justifiably been criticized in many respects. But on the other hand, you know, the appellate body has produced um, work which indicates that countries are permitted by WTO rules to pursue legitimate public policy objectives, such as related to the environment. And really, the only problem is that the devil is in the detail. It's how you do it. You can't be discriminatory in the way you do it. But, but the actual acceptance of legitimate public policy objectives as a basis for uh, non-discriminatory action is, is accepted by the WTO. I agree with what Stuart has said. I mean, the thing about the WTO is is that one of its most important functions is the fact that it brings people together to discuss trade issues. Some of them not terribly sexy. They're highly technical, technical barriers to trade, uh, sanitary and phytosanitary barriers to trade, giving people a chance to exchange information. And in many cases, disputes can be resolved quite amicably uh, without a lot of fanfare, simply by having these discussions. And And don't forget, I mean, the WTO sits on a body of work that dates back, well, what's coming up now, to, to 80 years. And, and that is something that's very, very important, that the international trading system, right now, three quarters of global trade still takes place, regardless of all of these, the proliferation of regional trade agreements, three quarters of trade still takes place under WTO rules. This is very important. Having said all of this, reform of the organization is essential. It's absolutely essential. And although the rules, as Stuart rightly says, do allow for action on the environment, I think that some of the things that we're looking at now, particularly the Inflation Reduction Act and the Carbon Border Adjustment Measure, I'm not a lawyer, but I would venture to say that some elements of both of these policies could be subject to challenge in a, in a dispute settlement system that was constructed as the one we had previously has been. Now, frankly, I don't think either Brussels or Washington, if they were, if a case were to be brought and they were to lose, they're not going to make a change anyway. Because to be perfectly frank, the system and the markets have not been able to address the issue of climate change. And Sullivan is right when he says, you know, markets don't provide all the answers. Negative externalities, such as environmental degradation, are not really addressed under existing systems. It does require government action. And whether or not the actions taken by, by Brussels and Washington, which are not completely compatible, by the way, uh, and Stuart mentioned the, the steel and aluminum um, pact, which the Americans very much hope will take their producers off the hook for any CBAM duties or fines that may may be applied. I don't think that's going to happen, but that's what they would like. I think these things are so important. The cli Addressing climate change is so important that if the WTO doesn't respond by saying, look, we have to acknowledge this is a question of, and, and this is a scary territory, I know, but national security. We need to be able to have rules that are flexible enough to allow for this kind of response. So with respect to dispute settlement, with respect to, to subsidies, 
And with respect to general operations, uh, greater transparency, you know that you know that most trade actions that are taken these days are not notified to the WTO. So to a certain extent, the the, the folks in the secretariat and the the delegations are driving blind. They don't know what the full picture is with respect to subsidies, with respect to dumping actions with respect to technical barriers to trade because governments are not notifying, which they have the obligation to do and which can be complicated, but very often they're not doing it because they're afraid if they were to notify some agricultural policy or another, for example, that this would mean they had run afoul of WTO rules and they'd be subject to litigation. So something has to be done. Um, the system is, is, is a fantastic public good but it's it operates on a mercantilist uh, principle which is not really based on sound sound e economic principles uh, it makes trade sound like a zero sum game the fact that that when you open your market you're making a concession tells you really all you need to know on that front so there needs to be a a a, a good hard look at how the organization functions and it has to be reformed or it won't be fit for purpose in the decades to come. Yeah, that's very good. Very good points, Keith. Let me come back to an issue about U.S. domestic policy and how it view these issues. Um, we're going to close this conversation very soon, but there's one thing which I, I've been struggling a bit with too, and it, it's basically about how America views China. My question here is basically, is there any chance, or do you think there is, a process going forward where the American view of China can change a bit and become sort of less focused on the prospect that the two sides are going to war with each other pretty soon because of the issue of Taiwan. Because it seems to me, I mean, if that idea, if that sort of national security primacy is going to sit over any type of issue that we've dealt with in trade policy or in international economic policy, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to get America to a place where we can have a constructive negotiation about what type of changes, what type of flexibilities will be necessary and are legitimate to have in a world that is changing. And not just for national security purposes, of course, but also for climate change and other purposes that you've mentioned, Keith. But, but it seems to me that this primacy of the notion that you know, it's it's the security hawks that control international economic policy, and if they are going to be in that controlling position, thinking that what America needs to do now is to prepare for war with China, then it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to get anywhere on on these economic policy issues. So, Keith, do you think is there a sort of scenario going forward where these passions can moderate a bit? Well, I mentioned at the beginning the speech by Secretary Yellen, which preceded that by Jake Sullivan by a week or two, I think, in which she, and I think Ursula von der Leyen deserves a lot of credit for this, she sort of reoriented the, um, the, the terminology by saying not decoupling but de-risking. Now, what exactly that means, I'm not sure anyone is 100% certain at the moment, but I think, I think there needs to be uh, an understanding. I mean, Trade between the U.S. and China last year hit an all-time record of well over $600 billion in two-way trade. The, the economic links between the two are immense. That means that each of the two players has a stake in this. 
Now, the, the United States has been, to a certain extent, pretty unfriendly towards China, but you can't let the Chinese off the hook either. Uh, what they've done in Hong Kong, in the South China Sea, these are concerns in the neighborhood, their neighborhood, but globally as well. And I think the position that Xi Jinping has taken vis-a-vis -vis Vladimir Putin in the war in Ukraine has not made him too many friends, certainly in Europe. So it, it's a two-way street. And the fact, as Stuart mentioned, the fact that the two sides are not talking to each other doesn't help. Hopefully, when the Secretary of State goes, they can, they can reignite this dialogue. Uh, hopefully, no balloons will fly into anyone's airspace or any other kind of uh, unanticipated glitch such as that, and that they can get this, these talks back on a firmer footing, and the sooner the better, in my view. I'll ask the same question to you, Stuart. Maybe I could chip in on that one. Um, I agree with, with what Keith has said. But I think we in the West, of course, are very much focused on how the U.S. views China. But equally important, I think, and often missing from the conversation, is how China views the West and the U.S. in particular. And you mentioned, you know, that perhaps uh, security hawks are in charge of U.S. economic policy. It could be the same in China in reverse. We don't know too much about that. But clearly, people in China feel that the U.S. is determined to keep them in a box, to prevent them rising to their what they regard as their rightful position. And I think looking at the Sullivan uh, speech, you know, I'm not sure there's much in there that would dissuade people in China from continuing to think that that is the case, that the, the whole purpose of U.S. policy uh, on a bipartisan basis is to, is to constrain China and to prevent its, its rise. So at some point, one hopes, perhaps naively, that uh, the U.S. might, through a process of, of dialogue, which we hope will be beginning, indicate some possibilities for de-escalation of this barrage or blizzard of anti-China um, legislation and resolutions and, 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 and committees that are currently the case in Washington. Because it is pretty hard to, as, as Keith said, it's a two-way street. And it's hard to see China coming to the table in a meaningful way against the sort of background that we, we currently see in Washington, I think. Yes, indeed. And I assume if they also labored under the impression uh, the, the impression that the most likely scenario for the next 20 years is that the two sides are going to war with each other, then, of course, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to engage in, in any type of dialogue over other policies. So... So indeed, let's hope. Let's hope for uh, a better chance for better opportunities for dialogues in the future, gentlemen. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and to record this podcast. You have certainly helped me to decipher U.S. trade policy, and it's been a great time uh, talking to you. Thank you, Frederick. Thanks very much, Frederick.